Welcome to Stemming in Stilettos with Dr. Tasha, a podcast for and about women of color in STEM. These women are brave, beautiful, and brilliant. Their stories deserve and need to be heard. Their voice strong, their message clear, their experiences priceless. Now let's welcome this wonderful winning woman of color to the show. Hello, and welcome to Stimming and Stilettos with Dr. Tasha. And you guys, when I tell you that I am super excited about today's guest, um, I am excited. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like we've been sort of playing, um, I don't know, sort of like a tag in, in a weird sense. Because I feel like we, we move in the same spaces and we know some of the same people. Um, you know, but we've never, we've never met, but we keep seeing each other. So, um, so I'm really excited to have the conversation. Our guest today is Dr. Simone Soso. Um, hi, Dr. Simone. How are you? I am excellent. How about yourself? Man, let me tell you, <laughs> it's, been a, it's been a week and a half, but I promise you, this is the best part of my day. <laughs> Mine too. <laughs> also, I'm just so, like I said, I'm really happy that you uh, can join us today on the show. You guys know that um, our show is about telling the stories of women of color in STEM, and I can't wait to hear your story, Dr. Simone. So as we do every show, please tell us your STEM story. Well, uh, I'm going to take you back a ways. Um, okay. <laughs> um, I grew up in a house with uh, a father with a medical degree mm. and a mother who was a professor of speech pathology. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And so they always ingrained in me the importance of science. Um, and really just STEM as a whole, because my dad was a math major in undergrad. And so, um, you know, he always stressed to me, uh, you know, you always need to know about STEM. And, you know, we talk about things in the news that were current events around science. And um, I remember getting a microscope in elementary school to look at things I had discovered in the yard and <laughs> things of that nature. <laughs> Um, even build an incubator for a science fair one year in elementary school and hatch chicken eggs. So I, <laughs> I was always, yeah, very active in, um, in science. And so yeah. when I got to high school, my mom said, well, you have to get your volunteer hours to graduate. So mm -hmm. instead of doing them in the traditional way, which most people did, you volunteer to church or, right. you know, I did that too, but my mom said, you know, you need to get some hours at the National Zoo because my parents were friends of the National Zoo members, FONS members. Mm -hmm. And they said, yeah, go on up there. So I applied to a program where we would work with urban youth. Uh, and we, we know what urban means, but, um, you know, minority youth and try to get yeah. them engaged in um, in science and in understanding the benefits and um, and the impacts of animals within their ecosystems, so we would have them come to the zoo and we do you know these activities with the kids, and so it led me to getting a paid position um, when I was in my senior year of high school and junior year, uh, working for kids' birthday parties at the National Zoo. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> yeah, so it was kind of crazy, but doing that work, even the volunteer work, I got to go behind the scenes and meet zoo veterinarians and pathologists. And I thought, oh, I want to be a zoo pathologist. Like, that's so cool. I could have a syndrome named after me or a disease <laughs> I discovered. My mom was like, you are a weird child, but that's <laughs> that is okay. And so um, I remember, you know, I applied to all these different animal science programs and I was a Maryland resident. And so there weren't that many schools in Maryland that offered um, animal science as a major. And so my parents are both HBCU alum. 
And they always try to promote HBCUs, especially for undergrad. Mm-hmm. And so I said, okay, well, my dad went to Howard. My mom went to UDC and neither of those schools had animal science. So I was like, well, it won't be on any of those. But um, I found that University of Maryland Eastern Shore did have my program. So I ended up, yeah, so I ended up going to UMES for undergrad. And um, it was one of the best things that ever happened to me. That's for sure. You know how much <laughs> of this story? It's because, like, I mean, you know, it's like the it's the road less traveled uh, mm-hmm. for you to, it's like, I mean, who volunteered? Like, I, I don't think, you know, especially being in urban areas, you know, like the zoo is a place we go maybe once a year with our, our you know, with our mm-hmm. classmates. Um, and I can tell you, so I had, in one of one of many many jobs ago, um, I was putting I put on a program for an elite group of girls where they got to go behind the scenes. Y'all, let me tell you, the zoo is an amazing place on the front side, mm-hmm. but the things happening on the back side are even more amazing. Oh yeah. So um. that you sort of took this step and it led you to a place I. Love that. Love that. <laughs> okay, so Maryland Eastern Shore. Yeah, so I get to Eastern Shore and I ended up being in uh, Lewis Stokes Alliance for Minority Participation Program, L- LSAM. LSAM, yes, that's a great Yeah. Yes, I was an LSAM student. And and so I got to meet at that time, the director was Clytrice Watson, who is now, I think she's vice provost for Dale State. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And so, um, Clash Reese and I, that's a whole other story in itself because we ended up meeting each other later in life in another way. Um, but uh, she was the director of the program at that time and she brought me in. And so I got to learn from her how few minorities were in STEM. Right. And I said, I want to be in a position where I'm a director of a program or an organization that focuses on increasing uh, diversity within STEM, because this is really something that I hold near and dear to my heart, and I want to have an impact. And so I never told her that till years later, but that <laughs> that really played a role in uh, my development. But I was also at the same time interested in animal health, animal reproduction. These are things that I became even more interested in at my time, you know, at UMES. And so I ended up majoring in animal health science for my master's at North Carolina A&T. Wow. So, yeah, so I went on to A&T and um, I said, okay. Well, actually, sorry, I missed this stuff. So after I graduated undergrad, I went to work at the zoo as a program, education program coordinator. Okay. For the National Zoo. But I did that, and then I knew I was going to do my master's. So then I went to A&T. So um, I went to A&T, and then I graduated, and it was a recession. Ooh. Yeah, so I had been doing work at A&T with goat reproduction, looking at pregnant goats and the effects of parasites and whatnot on on pregnancy and the impact of offspring, et cetera. Yeah. So um, I was doing that work and I said, okay, let me try to apply to these jobs like USDA or animal, animal science related jobs. And I wasn't having a lot of luck because of the recession. And so one of my friends, Derek uh, Coble, who's actually a professor at ANT now, he was at Iowa State and he said, oh, you need to come to Iowa State. You know, they're like top of the nation for egg and da 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 da. And you're not doing anything. Come on, do your PhD. <laughs> right. So, I said, all right, you're right. So I said, I'm gonna I'm gonna switch gears though. I'm gonna do environmental science because that seems to be the new thing, the new frontier. Okay. Let me ask a question though. Mm-hmm. Now, I think that's so interesting. I think that's super interesting. So because I see that there there is a re- there's a relationship between like the environment, the land, and animals mm-hmm. uh, and us. Uh, so I see the relationship when you and I might be moving your story along, but but like I I wanna I wanna know if early on what your thoughts were around sort of like that relationship. Did you pay attention when you were studying goats and you were doing the other things, how how much a part of that that 
um, study was related to their environment um, or was just more like the bi- their biological makeup? Um, so my prior work with the goats was more so on really the parasite load and not really even its relationship to the environment, but that there was already proof that for some odd reason, the body naturally will create this parasite load that's higher during the period right before an animal gives birth. I don't know why, Um, but it's just something that naturally occurs. And so I don't think I was putting much of an effort at that time into how the environment impacts animal health. Okay. Um, But when I got to Iowa State um, and I thought, okay, well, I'm going to do environmental science. I actually thought I was going to leave the whole animal component out. But uh, when I got there, well, right before I got there, I had written different professors. and, um, And so I wrote one professor who was doing air quality work. He's a civil engineer. Right. And he said, oh, but you have the zoo background of animals. Hey, I got this project with tigers, lions, and snow leopards that I want to do, but I don't have a graduate student to do it. Oh, okay. (laughs) So like you were just saying about environmental science and animal science, um, I began to do a project that was animal ecology focused, which is exactly what you're talking about, how animals are interacting with their environments. Hmm. So the work that I was doing there was on understanding the chemical components of tiger. Well, I ended up not really focusing on snow leopards, but focused on lion and tiger scent communication. Hmm. So understanding the chemical constituents of their marking fluid, which is urine and a lipid component that comes out of the urinary tract. So analyzing those chemicals, but then also analyzing the odors associated with those chemicals. Mm. So my friends loved to introduce me and say, hey, this is my friend Simone. She sniffs tiger pee, you know, (laughs) hey. (laughs) And you go, okay, what's a little more? Yeah, it's right. But like, (laughs) yeah. I, 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 okay, I. I could I could see myself doing that. I could see it. <laughs> um, no, that but you know what? I'm totally fascinated by this because I, I just I know that you know it's like we I think we know more now that you know there's a relationship between all those things. Um, but now I'm sort of sitting here thinking like are the are there different odors? Yes. Interesting. I don't think I knew that. There, there are a lot of different odors um, because like tiger marking fluid is comprised of at least 96 compounds. Shut up. And those, those are the ones that I was able to chemically identify. But there, are, there may be some that I may not have had necessarily the, um, the compound to compare it to to say, okay, this, is, this might be present. It should be present. So the thing with, um, so I use multidimensional gas chromatography, mass that my mass spectrometry, olfactometry instrument. Wow. So for short, MDGCMSO is <laughs> not short, but it's shorter than the whole title. <laughs> <laughs> so um, our lab is one of, at that time, I think there were only two universities in the country that had that instrument in its lab. And we had two. And so it allows you to separate your sample out. So like I would take um, a fiber that's attached to a needle, you know, you expose the fiber to the area above your sample. So in a vial, all the comp, all the volatile compounds that technically you're hoping a passerby animal should be able to smell. Mm, So the, Yes, the whole point is that you want to be able to smell what the animal could be smelling as it's passing by. Right. So you're looking at those specific compounds that are going into the air, the atmosphere. So those volatile organic compounds would adhere to the surface of that fiber. And then you insert it into the instrument, the MDGCMSO, and then it separates each compound one by one by weight. Interesting. 
Yeah. Okay. So as it's separating, you're sniffing in the sniff cord. So I'm sniffing each compound going, mm, this smells like it has a high intensity. It smells like burnt plastic. This smells like cake batter. This smells like taco shell. This smells like, you know, whatever it is it's smelling like and you're ranking right. it and, and the whole time as, you're, as it's going past. But at the same time, it's giving you something called a RT, which is the retention time. Mm-hmm. So the chemical is going to come out at the same retention time every time. Huh. Okay. And how, yeah, yeah. And how you know it's that chemical is there's like a whole um, website dedicated to it that'll tell you the odor of that chemical. If you smell it, it'll tell you um, it's flavor net. will tell you all the odors and then. You can also go on this website and it'll tell you the retention time of that compound. So Mm -hmm. then you can take a standard chemical, have it go through the instrument and come out at the exact same time that chemical comes out. Then you know for sure you have the smell and that time frame to say, okay, yes, this is the right compound. Okay. That is um, amazing. (laughs) No, I mean, I think... So, uh, can you hear me? Mm-hmm. So, um, what did you do with that? Like, I mean, so that was that was your master's, or that was your that was your your dissertation. You're working on your. Wow. Yeah. So, okay. Is so it, what I... is there? Uh, okay, I got a. Uh, this is this is the inner nerd. This is the. It's not even the inner nerd. She she exists. She's here. Um, <laughs> So, so do, do you think, is, is there a correlation, do you believe to like a, a human smells? Do you think, is it, can you, can we hypothesize that our odors have the same type of like RT, you know, thingies uh, without, you know, using that technical term, um, you know, so tell me what your thoughts are on that. That's that's what I, my thought is, is that we probably have something similar or no? There will be some compounds that I'm sure will be similar between human pheromones and, and other animal pheromones. Um, the thing that made the research I was doing unique, well, was the fact that I was able to use MDGCMSO because I had that mm-hmm. olfactory component. And that allowed for better identification of compounds that people thought were present in previous samples for other subspecies of tigers, mm-hmm. but they couldn't prove it. And so mm-hmm. one thing, like for instance, the overall aroma of tiger marking fluid is kind of like a taco shell nutty, kind of reminds you of getting like a bag of like corn chips. hmm it has that smell. So if you're looking for that specific compound, you're like, oh, that's a 2-acetyl-1-pyrrolene. That's the compound you're looking for. But but I went to India for a while and did research with uh, scientists over there who had done the work 20 years prior. And they said, yeah, we just couldn't prove that compound was in there. But then I was able with a new method for identifying compounds, able to identify that specific compound. Mm-hmm. Um. But, you know, it, it, it's, it exists in a lot of different plants and rice and basmati rice and a lot of other foods. And like that, there are a lot of other compounds that are ubiquitous in nature. Like, I'm pretty sure, I don't know off the top of my head, but I'm pretty sure for people, I'm pretty sure acetic acid is probably in our pheromone makeup. Okay. And it's in the presence of tigers too. <laughs> Okay. Um, I enjoy that so much. <laughs> so, okay. So after you finish your dissertation, what are we up to? So I finished my dissertation and um, I need a job. So uh, briefly, I worked for Georgetown University uh, as an analyst, which had nothing to do with my background. But in doing that work, I volunteered with a lot of different organizations um, like the NAACP. I served on their um, Environmental and Climate Justice Committee, and then I served on their Education Committee. And so I did that, and I also worked with um, United Negro College Fund, a variety of different organizations. 
And I met um, a few people that were AAAS science and technology policy fellows. So for those of you who don't know AAAS, American Association for the Advancement of Science, science and technology policy fellows, and they were, um, they were members of Black Women in Science and Engineering, BYs. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so we're at a BYS meeting and they're like, oh, well, you're doing policy work with the NAACP around education. And then you're doing this, like, you need to be a AAAS fellow. You have a PhD and you're doing this. You're a shoe in. So I said, oh, okay. I didn't know about the fellowship. So, right. um, so they, they helped me. They prepped me. Very supportive. Um, I applied to the program and I became a AAAS science and technology policy fellow. Um, but in the time between starting the fellowship and I left Georgetown, I was an, uh, a STEM program manager for a company called Envision. So I managed two different programs in the meantime and between time, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I managed a gaming and technology program and an engineering program for that. Ooh. Yeah. Okay. So I love that. Well, I mean, because so I'm a former engineer. I say I'm a former engineer. I'm an engineer. Um, So yes, yes to that. Um, And I know how important right now, you know, gaming and development and design is um, and how it'll continue to grow because it's morphing itself into other areas. Like I, you know, like corporations who aren't who aren't gaming corporations are using gaming to, you know, to sort of simulate and do different things. Mm -hmm. So um, wow. (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah I mean I I enjoyed it and we had camp we were working with campuses across the country so not only did that allow students to have opportunities to do a project and a program at a university because they were middle school and high school students but it allowed them to interact with students with faculty and get that experience. Um, And I think that's really the key to student success Mm -hmm. is that exposure. Mm -hmm. Just like I talked about me being exposed to the National Zoo and having a microscope, et cetera, it's that exposure key that unfortunately kids aren't getting. Yeah, still. And and that's the part that I want people to, to get and really know is that, you know, still it's 2021 at the moment of this, at the time of this recording. And there are still pockets of the population that haven't been exposed to STEM in any meaningful way. I'll say that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. And, um, <laughs> and I think working in that space um, allowed me to see the populations that we should be touching and those that may not get those same opportunities because of lack of resources. Right, right. And I don't know if people really, and maybe I'm wrong, but I'll be wrong. Um, I just feel like there's not, there. I haven't heard the conversations, a lot of conversations about that piece, about there's, you know, the specific portions of the population that aren't getting STEM in any meaningful ways, and then ways in which to combat that and then to give them STEM, and I'm not talking about like a STEM day. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean a, a really robust STEM program where we help, we are helping to channel energy. Um, you know, the the bad kid, and I put that in quotation mm-hmm. mark into you know into channeling that energy into something that can you know can be productive and creative, and you know, sort of helping him or her think outside the box that will channel, you know, channel just that, that thing Mm -hmm. um, into something that can be something long-term, you know, a girl who thinks that maybe she's, you know, she's not a, you know, a stemonist um, come to find out, um, yes, you are. And Mm -hmm. and here's why, because STEM is so broad. Um, Mm -hmm. It can be broad. It can be very specific, but we've sort of morphed it, it, it into a certain thing. And mm-hmm. people think about it in terms of certain careers when it is, name a thing that doesn't have a STEM component at this point. Right. 
Exactly. And I was going to say, like, skipping, you know, I'm sure mm-hmm. you might ask me a question about NSF, but, you mm-hmm. know, because I was a triple A fellow at NSF. But mm-hmm. after leaving NSF, I went to work for Quality Education for Minorities Network, which is where mm-hmm. I'm currently the program director. And in this position, we have a program that uh, we have funding from NSF to do. And we work with computer science teachers to um, <laughs> to get them culturally responsive training in computer science. Okay, so now <laughs> you've just blown my mind. Because this, is, this has been a story for such a long time, quietly, I think. Um, unless you run in sort of education circles, then it's sort of the thing, right? But the, 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 I'll just speak. I'm in Georgia. Um, I can tell you that in Georgia, they were, until, until um, COVID hit, they were trying to roll out uh, a brand new um, computer science curriculum from K to, to 12th grade. Mm-hmm. So as you can imagine, they're kindergarten teachers, first grade, second grade teachers, elementary school teachers, middle school teachers who were like, I, I don't know anything about computer. Would you tell me how to teach computer science? What? It was this, you know, and the way in which they thought about it. If if I can, um, this is the world according to to Dr. Tasha. It it wasn't going. It was just wasn't going to work because you know being in a classroom with a subject that you feel unease about, you know, sort of like it doesn't always, you know, some people dive in and they go all the way, and then other people's are just skimming the surface, right? They just mm-hmm. I'm gonna do enough to get by, say I did it, and keep it moving, and that's not what we want. Um, so the the I love that you guys have this program where you're teaching and it's culturally relevant. Oh, that's the thing because the way you would teach it in one place is not is not going to make any sense to teach it, you know, that same way in another place. It just has to be relevant to the culture or the environment in which you you teach. Yeah. I 100% agree with that. And you know, when you were talking about offering that opportunity to students that might be considered the quote-unquote bad student. Um, One of the teachers in our program is at an alternative school, Mm -hmm. and he was saying that it's great to be able to show the students you don't have to sell drugs. Right. You You can make money this way, legit, and you'll make a large amount. Mm-hmm. Like you can come in here. I'm gonna teach you how to code. I'm gonna teach you how to do some robotics with this with these computers. I'm gonna teach you all these things you can do that you would have otherwise never been exposed to. Yeah, and that's the yeah. thing. Like there are a lot of STEM areas that are high paying positions, and I think a lot of times African Americans, minor and other minority groups are not exposed to the possibility of careers in those particular fields and it limits us financially. Yeah. But if if you knew you could be in biomedical engineering or you know some of these other pathways and to generational wealth that you could be creating, um I think it would be better for us as a community. Yeah, I agree and I I think what you said was so it was beautiful. I mean, when you said, you know, it's like you get exposed to the possibility of, you know, of a thing, right? Mm-hmm. Of a career, of a, I just think that that's so, that's the thing we should be doing. Like every kid should be, you know, they should, they should know all the possibilities, all the possibilities and in, in a few that's probably like, yeah, that's probably not going to happen, right? Mm-hmm. But like, who am I to say? Because extraordinary things happen. Um, and people are, are out here doing, you know, extraordinary things. So you, you can't really put a cap on anyone about what it is they can do. And to me, STEM has to be an option. It, it has to be an option. I agree. I 100% agree. And I think, <laughs> yeah, like who, who would have ever thought I'd be in the jungles of India doing tiger collections and (laughs) analyzing tiger scents. My family is like, yeah, Simone, boy, she's just out here doing some stuff. I don't, (laughs) you know, they don't even know how to tell, like, what does she do? She's going with some tigers. Tell the people what to do, you know? (laughs) That's what my mama used to say. 
my mom used to say, she would be like, my, she's, she does something with buildings. I don't know. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, okay. Right, right. But I mean, it's important, you know, that even we show our faces, of course, you know, this to, to younger generations that are coming up going, oh, maybe I could too you know, study tigers or, you know, look into buildings or whatever it is, you know, that we're doing because we might be the only ones, like, I know I'm the only black person in the world that's looking at tiger scent markings, who has looked at tiger scent markings. Wow. Okay. So that puts you, you know, in rarefied air. Um, you were, you're probably like the first, you're the, were you the first or you're the only, you're the first and the only? I'm not the first to ever look at tiger scent markings, Mm -hmm. but I am the first to uh, look at at analyzing them with the odor component to identify more of the compounds. So I developed a methodology for analyzing the markings. But do they look like you? Do they look like you? Oh, no, no, no. No one... Yeah. <laughs> no one at all <laughs> looks like me and that's that's for sure yeah and that's what I mean you're you're in rarefied air you are a rarity you are what we would call a unicorn <laughs> and I mean that with all of the joy that that brings <laughs> <So>. <laughs> my girlfriends used to call me that all the time and I was like, no, nah, I don't think I'm a unicorn because they're like, you know, I don't know anybody who, you know, who's a black uh, woman engineer. And I'm like, no, no, there's a lot of us out here, um, you know, that so we just haven't we we haven't been vocal and, and loud about telling our stories and about telling people we're out here. But we out here. We, we mm-hmm. out here in these streets. OK, mm-hmm. um, but I mean, and I think that's well, that's the reason why the, the podcast the cast exists. But um, I have enjoyed your story so tremendously. I think people need to hear the, you know, that there is the possibility of for extraordinary. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate (laughs) that. And likewise, and you know, I bought one of your books for my nephew, by the way. (gasps) Okay. Don't make me tear up today because I I can't. (laughs) (laughs) I think I look cute today, so there's going to be no tears. But thank you so much. <laughs> I did. I, I said, ooh, and he's three, but he's super smart. They're actually going to skip him to kindergarten. Oh, wow. That's Yeah, yes. he's super smart. So he really loves reading, and he enjoys the book, because they'll make you oh, read it 18 you. times in a row. <laughs> <laughs> that's the best best of us you know that that has actually made my day um that's why I wrote the book so um yeah that just made my day so thank you for that uh, okay so tell me this um if you well first off I got I have maybe three questions um I really want to talk about you know, sort of like where how you where you land where you landed now and like where do you see that where do you see STEM, STEM education going in, like, let's say five years? Hmm. So where I'm at now in terms of STEM education? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not to say that QEM, where I am now in terms of employment, QEM Network, we do do work in K through 12 spaces. But the majority of the work that we do is in STEM higher ed. Mm-hmm. Okay. So in working in that space, where I see the direction, can we work with minority serving institutions uh, only? So in those spaces, I see capacity building in those institutions I see um, those institutions being able to offer courses that they didn't once offer in STEM areas. Um, I see them getting instrumentation so that they can properly offer those opportunities to their students. Um, I even see them doing collaborations with one another so that they can get funding because that was one of the things that I work 
uh, hard at is trying to help assist uh, minority serving institutions get federal funding mm -hmm. um, and doing workshops and working with program officers at NSF and other agencies. So getting them that funding so that they can support the needs of the, edu the educational needs of their institutions. So do you see, do you see um, partnerships? Oh, yeah. There has okay, to be with, partnerships. With business and industry, because I think that's, you know, from where, from my seat in the, on the bus, I see, you know, I see there's, there's been, there's a lot of attention, especially on minority, minority serving institutions right now, mm -hmm. um, which means that there's a lot of attention on, on us, like our mm -hmm. students, um, the younger us, right? Um, you know, and I would like to believe that this is, this is one of those things where it's a sustained effort over time. Like, you know, it's going to keep on coming where they're going to, you know, we, we won't have, who, who was the, who was the person that the, the CEO of some corporation that ended up in the news a couple of years ago? Cause they said, we can't find any good, any good. Oh, the Wells Fargo. We don't want a repeat of that. <laughs> he does not want a repeat of that. No. So that's that's why I'm saying I think the partnerships are vitally important. Um, especially if we're you know Microsoft, Google, but some of the other startups and all of the other tech mm -hmm. you know, tech companies and whoever mm -hmm. else companies that are out here that are looking for talent. I'm like it's a it's a it's a great place to mine the fields. Um, if you didn't know and now you know. Um, but you've got, but treat them right when you get them in, because this group will leave you. <laughs> I want to give you a high five at a distance because I had two conversations just today on that very same topic. Wow. And I'm all about creating a pipeline system. All about it, because there was an article that was released maybe almost a year ago because uh, North Carolina A&T had gotten some money from Walmart. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So they created that program where they would take business majors and train them to work at Walmart and get them employment post-graduation. And in that article, it talks about the percentage of Black and Latinx students that were unemployed or underemployed after graduating from whatever institutions. And it was so high, like it was over 50%. And I was like, Whoa. that number Whoa. angered me. Like it wasn't even, right. wow, I'm shot. It was like, I'm angry and we need to do something about that. And I'm all about creating pipeline connections and partnerships with corporations, with organizations to get people one experience to employment. Because what is a STEM degree if you don't have a job? Well, speak on it. <laughs> How many people have we known that don't work in their fields? Mm -hmm. You know, yes, we, we want to get STEM degrees, but we want to have employment associated with those STEM degrees. And I'm always on my soapbox for that. Right. And then also, like you were saying, once you bring them in, are you including them? Are you being inclusive of your workforce? And right. that goes for even institutions of higher learning. If you're bringing in minority students, how are you treating them? Mm. Are they staying or are they right. leaving? You know, right. and then you, and then you want to say, oh, we can't recruit. No, because you get a bad rep. Right. And nobody, so you're not, how long are you going to stay at some place that you are underappreciated? Come on now. Opportunities are too plentiful for me to stay here and be abused and to stay here where my voice is not heard and to stay here and to be in. No, um, that time I would love to believe is is over. Um, and I hope that students know and understand that they have agency um, and that they can take control of their own they should early on, I wish this is one of the lessons I wish someone had told me early, is that you um, never let someone else tell you where to go in your own career. You have to know what it is that you want, even if all the other voices are saying, 
Yeah, maybe not. Um, you have to live, you, you have to live your own life and your story, your journey is your journey. So you might as well take all the agency you need in order for that to happen. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I, I, I'm sorry to cut you off. Um, I was going to say, yeah, I gave a presentation at Iowa State um, a couple weeks ago and I was talking and someone was asking me about one imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. And then they were talking, they asked me about, um, I forget what the second question was, but but I was talking about how as a graduate student, you know, you're always like, oh, you know, I have no power. What can I really do? And at the time when I was at Iowa State and I had some issues with funding, I went to um, several people and one of them was like the VP of um, like students or Dean of Students. And I was talking to him and I said, um, you know, I need assistance, you know, and he goes, you know, graduate students, you all are powerless, but you're not helpless. Is mm. there are people on this campus that will help you. And I'm one of those people. So understand you have allies and advocates here. And I think that's what a lot of graduate students don't understand. Mm-hmm. And I was a very vocal person, so people knew me, <laughs> and they were like, "Oh, okay, it's about, okay. Let me try to help." Yeah, and so I had a lot of allies. I really did, and um, I think there's something to, you know, of course, people having imposter syndrome. Um, and I was telling the person who asked me about because she was like, "Well, how do you overcome, you know, imposter syndrome?" And I was like, "I didn't suffer from imposter syndrome." But I think it's because I came from two HBCUs that have nothing but Black excellence within the walls and tell you every day that you are Black excellence. Mm-hmm. And that is something that you aren't most likely going to receive at a PWI. I can speak on it. You don't. <laughs> <laughs> like, I already know because I did my PhD one. You aren't going to get that same um, support, that same uplifting. Right. And it's like the, la- and I try to tell people, it's like the last place you go where you feel like I'm awesome. And then you're thrust into a world that is diverse and you have to understand how to swim. Ooh, wow. I don't think I've ever heard anyone put it that way, but that was, that was great. That was that was that was pretty damn good. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, so I feel like there's a part two in here someplace. So you guys will be hearing Dr. Simone again. Um uh, it's predestined. It's going to happen. All right. Um, um <clears throat> okay, so tell people where it, you know, because I'm sure they're gonna be looking for you. So where can they find you? Where, what's happening? What's coming up for you? Um, yeah, where can they find you? Um, you can always find me on LinkedIn. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that is definitely a place to find me. Um, mm-hmm. You know, just I'm sure if you Google searched me, I'd pop up Simone B. Soso or Dr. Mm-hmm. Soso or whatever. Um, uh, and also on the QEM website, you know, and that's a good place to find out about upcoming workshops we're hosting. Um, and activities that QEM is is having, um, which of course I'm typically a part of. So that's you know definitely a space for that. And she's just typically a part of, like you know, <laughs> she's not she's not running the show from behind. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> all right, I see you. I see you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. So. You guys, um, you will find everything you need to know um, about where to locate Dr. Soso on um, in the show notes. So you have to read the show notes. Again, please read the show notes, people. You'll find her bio. You'll find every link to wherever it is that I can, you know, I can um, freely stalk her. You guys will know and can stalk her also. Um, but you didn't hear it. You didn't hear it here. You didn't hear it from me. Um, but you'll have, you'll have all the all the things you need. All right, so here's the last question that we ask every show, every person who's been on the show. 
And it is, if you could travel back through time, if you could, if you could travel back through time and talk to your younger self, if you could travel back through time and talk to your younger self, what advice would you give her and why? Um, I would definitely tell her, get the least amount of student loan debt you can possibly get. Because everyone who knows me well knows I bring up student loans in like every conversation. So (laughs) if I could have applied to more scholarships, even in undergrad and grad school, um, even though I had full tuition rides, fees were not free. And so, you know, those start adding up and you have student loan debt and trying to get out of your, you know, your impoverished status. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I think applying to more scholarships would be uh, one definite part. And then networking more when I was in undergrad. I didn't, I didn't network (laughs) really until I was, um, I'm I know for sure to my PhD, but Mm-hmm. definitely a lot post PhD. I do a lot, I do a lot of networking today. Right. Um, and networking is really helpful in employment. It's really helpful in knowing people um, so that you have a lot of resources. And that's one thing being a AAAS fellow really, really did teach me is okay. that we have a large network of AAAS fellows that we can call upon. And they know even more people. So it's kind of like we're this big network of resources. And I so love that. I make it a point, you know, I I could have done informational interviews. <laughs> you know, I tell people all the time, kids all the time, if you if you're interested or you want to know how to get to a certain place, do informational interviews. Mm-hmm. Um, I hear that. Mm-hmm. Do you think, okay. And, and I almost never do this, but I have a question about this because I feel like we tell kids to network, but then we don't necessarily tell them how to network because, mm-hmm. um, you know, because most of them think, you know, sort of like, hi, here's my business card. Here's what I'm trying to do. Um, and, uh, you know, if you're basically if you're interested in me, you call me. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> No, honey, no one's calling. That's not how that works <laughs> at all. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of, I don't know. Some of these kids don't even know how to write an email. So I, I, I mean, it kind of falls in the same category. Lack of social skills and ability to communicate properly or effectively. I do, yeah. I mean, and I give people, because I'm also on the board of One Health Lessons, so, you know, there are people who are volunteers for that organization and they'll reach out to me on LinkedIn and say, hey, can I do, can I have a conversation with you about blah, blah, blah. And some of that is about, you know, what can I do for my career? How can I, you know, do informational, what's the informational interview, you know, talking to them in that space and kind of getting them to understand the importance of those kind of conversations. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, teaching younger people you know, I feel I like I'm old sometimes, but I'm not that old, but say <laughs> the same thing. But 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 going back is going back to um, you know, is what other advice would you get would you have given to your younger self? Um student loan and networking. And I think um, you know, everyone's hard on themselves, but I think there were times that I could have grinded even harder. Mm-hmm. and gotten done with my degrees a little sooner. Got it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think, I mean, everyone has those moments, but I could have grinded a little harder, a little bit. Mm-hmm. Got it. Mm-hmm. Okay, I got it. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think I understand that because there are times when, you know, like for a myriad of reasons, like other things become more important. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Just sort of, you know, do what you do. And then all of a sudden you start, (laughs) you know, you're going, you're going really fast. Like, now I got to get done with this. And it's like, where was this a year ago? Right. Right. I could have been done. Like, (laughs) doing this. Right. But life happens. Yeah. Life happens too. 
Yeah, for sure. For sure. Many things happened during my PhD and, you know, it, it prolonged it a little bit, but it's still not as bad as some people. So I, don't, I, I mean, I hear it. Yeah. Well, I had a friend who, um, I think I have a friend who, who did her PhD in like seven years. It was, it's, it was a long time mm-hmm. um, because, you know, she got married, she had some kids, there were some health issues and it was like, whoa, whoa, yeah. but, but she did finish. So she, she is doctor, you know, whomever. So that's mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. So you guys, I know, well, let me just speak for myself. I enjoyed our conversation today. Likewise, likewise. <laughs> um, so I really want to thank you for just be just being so given, giving and so open um, in your in the telling of your story, but in giving advice to um, the next generation and to the to my listening audience. Um, it's it you have blessed me, um, and I like I said at the beginning of this, this is the highlight of my day. Um, so I appreciate you so so much. Thank you so much. I've been watching your posts about your podcast for a while. And I'm like, I wonder how I can get on there. Like, it seems so cool. So (laughs) I was, I was elated and I am elated to be on this episode and share my story. And, you know, if anyone ever wants to talk to me about anything, they are more than welcome to reach out. Awesome. And again, you guys will find all of her contact information where in the show notes. Um, <laughs> all, <laughs> all right. So you guys, that that um, concludes today's episode of Stimming and Stilettos with Dr. Tasha. And as I end every show, you guys keep yourselves safe and uh, take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of Stimming and Stilettos. Please check out the show notes to get additional information about today's guest or today's topic. You can find the podcast on every major podcast platform. You can find additional information about Dr. Tasha at www.drtasha.com. Thanks again, and don't forget to tune in every Tuesday for the latest episode of Stemming in Stilettos.